0: This is the Spycraft 101 Podcast. Welcome to your clandestine classroom. This is episode number 42 of the Spycraft 101 Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Janet Ray, whose father, Thomas Pete Ray, lost his life in April 1961 during the amphibious invasion of Cuba at the Bay of Pigs. Pete Ray's aircraft was shot down by Cuban air defenses, but that was only the beginning of a long and difficult road that the family had to walk as they sought answers from the U.S. government and fought to have her father's remains returned from Cuba. I hope that Janet's story will help to shed the light on one of the lesser-known costs of covert operations, which is the ordeals that families can go through when everything about their loved one's final missions are classified and sometimes written off. But before we get into Janet and her father's story, I want to let you all know about a new educational tool you're not going to want to miss. It's the gray Gray Man Briefing Classified. By now, I think I know my listeners pretty well, and take it from me, this briefing is exactly the news and educational reference source that you've been looking for. You'll get breaking news updates from all over the world on topics including planned protests and riots, low-intensity conflicts, natural disaster alerts, cyber attacks, supply chain disruptions, and more. You'll also get access to articles that help you build your own skills, including urban survival, home security, counter-surveillance, escape and evasion techniques, and more. And this is much more than just a newsletter in your inbox. Joining the Gray Man Briefing Classified also includes invitation-only channels on the Telegram and Signal apps for convenient real-time updates. The newsletter subscription is normally just $5 per month, but if you use the code GBCSpyCraft, you can save 20% each month for the life of your subscription. I'm already a member myself and have been reading and learning a lot ever since I first subscribed. Look it up yourself at graymanbriefing.com. That's gray with an A, graymanbriefing.com. And use the discount code GBCSPYCRAFT to save 20% right from the start. Janet, I really appreciate you making the time to talk with me today. So this this is wonderful. I know we've been in contact for several weeks now trying to arrange this, and I'm glad that it finally happened. I want to start off by talking a little bit about your life before the mission, before April of 1961. So I know that you were a young girl at that time. Can you just tell us a little bit about what it was growing up and your memories of your father?
1: We had a very typical Southern family growing up. It was family, it was church, and it was the Alabama Air Guard. My dad grew up about one mile from the gate of the Air Guard. And he actually joined the Air Guard when he was 15 years old. And when he graduated from high school, he didn't even stay to graduate. He left to go into active duty Air Force for a while. And he was someone who had, we both had a great love of animals, And when he actually got called up for the Bay of Pigs, he was actually transferring from the Alabama Air Guard to the Army Air Guard. And he was in Army training down at Fort Rutger, Alabama. And he received a phone call that he needed to report to Birmingham. We took him to the airport. General Doster sent a jet to pick him up. And then he came back and we were announced. We're moving back to Birmingham. He had arranged for us to go live with my grandparents on my mother's side because our house was rented in Center Point. And that was a little odd for us to go back so quickly, but I did not catch on that anything was different because I was used for, used to him going off missions, And this is all happening in January of 61 and he leaves the first part of February 61 with a group of other pilots and air guard people.
0: Okay, was that, I hate to ask this almost, but was that the last time that you saw him was in Was in February?
1: No, the last time I saw him was between Easter and the Bay of Pigs. My brother and I were asleep one night in the back room. Of, my mother had a bed back there. And we heard some commotion and I jumped down from the bed and got my dog and it was my father. And that night we he bundled us up and we went to visit his mother, my grandmother, Ray. But what I noticed was the next day I came home from school for lunch break and we were sitting at the kitchen table having a sandwich And I looked down at his legs and I said, where have you been? Have you been to the beach without me? And my mother drops a glass and it breaks. My father stands up, walks out of the room, comes back wearing a long pair of pants and never answers me. And right then and there, I knew something was wrong. That is the first thing that I can remember And he was supposed to stay for the weekend, but it's a Saturday, just two days later. My brother and I are watching Tarzan and my mom comes in and she said, I'm taking your dad to the airport. Do you want to go and come hug your dad? So I get up and I hug him and I sit down and I start watching Tarzan. And then I went, oh my God, I saw the B4 bag. He's leaving. I just thought he had got, was going to the guard. And I ran down the steps and as he was passing by and tried to catch the car, but I fell down and skinned my knees and my hands. And that is the last that I saw him.
0: Mm. My goodness. So as a child, of course, you were you were totally unaware of of what was going on, I take it, especially since he refused to answer a lot of questions. But I know that in the coming years, you, you learned so much about what happened those few days in April of, of 61, which is, is why we're here, of course. But to start with, can you give uh, just a little bit of an introduction? I don't think that a lot of people are generally aware that, you know, there was a invasion force that was going to retake Cuba from the Castro government and how in the world it is that some Pilots and and engineers and other personnel from the Alabama National Guard got involved in this. So can you start off by just talking a little bit about how he was recruited for this mission or how he volunteered for this mission?
1: Well, my father, along with some other pilots, they had either been in the Air Guard or they had worked at Hayes Aircraft. And the CIA approached the Alabama Air Guard because they were one of the last units to fly the B-26. So they needed people that had that type of experience and knew how to work on these airplanes. And when my dad was called up, they weren't originally going to fly. They were going to help train the Cubans in tactical maneuvers on the b twenty six. And what happened was when the the last day of the invasion, they had a flight going out. I think it was like five American pilots and one Cuban pilot. And my dad was in the airplane. He was the pilot. And then his co-pilot was Leo Francis Baker. The other flight had Schamburger and Gray. And when my dad is shot down he actually survives the air crash and he makes it away from the plane and is wounded in a gun battle. And then he is brought back to the hospital area at the central Australia sugar mill where he is executed at point blank range. Now he did not have any fake identification with him. Leo Francis Baker had some fake identification. So there's always been some confusion about which body the Cubans had, but they described it as a blonde haired, blue eyed American. My dad was not blonde, but a Cuban might call him blonde, but he had salt and pepper gray hair and a military haircut. And he was definitely blue eyed. So when they come to tell us, they come and tell the widows that their husbands were working for a group of wealthy Cubans and they've been shot down over the Caribbean. And please do not say anything because you could be putting a bullet in their head or putting their lives at danger. First of all, the widows, one The widows started questioning it right away. First of all, they didn't fly that type of transport plane. And one of the widows actually said, well, we saw the engine floating. And someone said, engines don't float. So once you lie to people, you've got a problem. So they come back and they said, okay, now you can tell they're dead. They've drowned in the Caribbean. So they they release it to the press May the 5th, the day Alan Shepard goes up, the first American in space. And they basically hold a press conference. And what they do is the cover story is to smear their names and their reputations. They are to say in there, And I know the gentleman who wrote the story, he said, I knew the truth and I knew what I was writing was not true. But they said, oh, don't worry about these women. They're getting a substantial amount of money. And that was one way to throw them off. And they said, these men knew what they were getting into. They gambled with their lives and they lost. And that I remember crying hysterically, holding this paper, seeing my father's photo with the words, nice nest egg. And this is not what these men were about. So, not only did we lose someone we loved, our own government was betraying them and destroying their reputation. Quite different than how the brigade was handled. They were handled as heroes. Kennedy came down when they got out of prison in 62 and called them heroes, while his own men they were destroying. And I was to find out later more about it. I went to interview Richard Bissell, who was head of covert ops at the CA, Directorate of plans. And Mr. Bissell shared with me something. He said, after it was over, I went to see the President. And Bobby Kennedy was there like a chihuahua jumping up and down. And, you know, Bissell's very tall, not very coordinated, and Bobby Kennedy's very short. And he said the exact words, those American pilots had better GD well be dead, or will have my brother will have another Francis Gary Powers on his hand. And look what it will do to his reputation. And Biden, what Bissell was telling me was the big cover up was mainly all to protect the president's reputation. And I think there's a lot of people at the CIA that did not agree with it. I'm sure the political heads agreed with it, but I I just think it's so wrong to to do this to a family because it caused immense pain and grief. Because there was always this question, how much money are they getting? And we got $225 twice a month deposited in a bank account for the first five or six years. My mom couldn't have even gone out and got a loan. She could have under Social Security, but they were always being threatened that if you talk about it, we can cut your money off at any time. And we were given an attorney in Alabama that actually threatened my mom and another widow. They were the younger ones. There were women that went to church. They were very vulnerable. And he would actually try to physically assault them. Violet Gray, one of the other widows, when her mother heard this, she came in that into the kitchen, grabbed the broom. And chased this attorney all through the house, out the door, down the steps, to the car, until she broke that uh, broom over the car. And it ended up a writer named Buck Persons, who had actually been involved, heard about it, and he was able to get to some of the CA people that were in the air ops that were now in Marana and out in is it Arizona. And explained to them near Tucson what was going on. And they actually took this man off our off the case because these women were terrorized. I was watching a show in the mid to late 70s. And it was Rolando Martinez, one of the Watergate burglars. And he was talking about, whom do I trust? Whom do I give my loyalty to? And that's the way the widows felt. Then they felt their phones were tapped and it was just a very painful, scary time for all of these widows that lived with it. And it wasn't too many years later. I think I was a junior in high school. They actually came and admitted that my dad was flying a B-26. Well, by that time, you already knew. They never came and told us. They They always came in groups of two. They were always wearing suits and I learned to feel their hands and their hands didn't have calluses. And back then pilots had calluses these. And I realized these are attorneys. These are not the men that I want to speak to. I want, I want the truth because through the years of investigation, I traveled all over the country I would talk to people that had participated. Most of them were afraid and just would not talk to us at all because they weren't um, allowed to. But I started going to Miami during my college years, meeting the Cuban pilots down here. And they totally embraced you. They totally, uh, openly talked about it. And it was kind of like a puzzle of putting together parts like I would hear Uh, rumors that your father was executed. I do know that when John Kennedy was assassinated in 63, I was getting on a bus at school and the kids were talking about John Kennedy had been assassinated and shot in the head. And at that point with the Southern religious background, you believe that if you sin, God will punish you. And I actually thought, God has punished you because you allowed my father to be shot in the head. So I knew something about an execution. I would ask the CA, they they would just say, well, he's dead. That's all we can tell you. I heard that there were photos and the CA said, well, we don't know anything about him. And they did have photos in the camps right after the Bay of Pigs was over And they went to several guys, including Dalton Livingston, who had gone to high school with my dad, was in the guard, and flew also on that last day of the 19th. And Dalton identified him and a few others, but Dalton had seen that photo. And they could have told us about that, but they never did. And I do know in 1963, the CIA... I was given documents said, hey, we need to go tell these families the truth. We've never done this to another set of families. You know, it's causing them great harm. Well, Richard Helms goes to the Justice Department, which we know is Bobby Kennedy. And this is about January of 63. And the answer is, well, we have no problem with you telling the families the truth, but it might affect the 64 election. So you can't do it. And that was just another reason why it was kept so secret. And I think Kennedy finally did have to come out and say, oh, these men died in service of their country. But that was just a political statement. Nothing changed in our lives. No one was allowed to tell us the truth. I mean, We even had neighbors that lived two or three doors down that after that day I was a little girl. They would never talk to me. They would run from me. Uh, my mom's and my father's high school friends at Newt could not talk to them. It was the same with Violet Gray. So there was a complete fear. But I do respect the CA for wanting to try to tell us the truth. That I'm sure there were two camps in there. That was... I cannot tell you the pain it caused for someone who loved his country and a daughter to see her father's name smeared that way. And you don't know who to believe. I also began to hear that there were the photos and, you know, the CIA just kept denying it. And they even had a uh, plan, which I was given documentation to quiet the daughter's curiosity during my teens and early 20s. I think they hoped it would just go away, but I was bound and determined the more they tried to silence me, the more I knew there was more to the story of, of these men. And I do know that there was a description of my dad shown or his photo was shown very briefly on Cuban television We've never been able to find the documentation for it, but there were people who said it was shown. And the United States did not request him back. Even when the U 2 pilot, Rudolph Anderson, goes down in October of 62, his body is put in the same morgue with my father. And he is brought home with honors. Kennedy even contacts the family. But it was not so with us. I honestly feel that the United States government did not want that body back. And Castro kept it in the morgue for almost 19 years until we were able to get him out and bring him home to Alabama for burial.
0: My gosh, Janet, you've been through so much. It's unbelievable. I'm still honestly kind of bowled over by what you said several minutes ago about Bobby Kennedy. Being quoted as saying that he hoped the pilot was dead, it's hard for me to imagine someone so disconnected from the 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 sacrifices and the effort, and only thinking about protecting his brother and protecting the administration, that he would hope that you know a a volunteer pilot like your father was actually dead, not just a captured alive.
1: Well, you know, Mister Bissell shared with me that he was invited to go back to the White House to work after, you know, he had been dismissed from the CIA because he kept, he kept the story for the Kennedys. And he said, I just couldn't go back. And he said, one of the reasons I couldn't go back was because the way they, they their attitude towards those Americans that died and it greatly bothered him And when he passed away shortly after I visited him, he wasn't buried to June. And Mrs. Bissell called and invited me to come to his funeral, which I thought was an incredible honor. And she says, I want you to stay at the house with the family. And I said, no, I'll stay at a hotel. And at that funeral, she she tells me, you know, you're the only one for his CIA years that we invited to the funeral. Oh, my gosh. And she said, because you didn't blame him and you allowed him to, be, to die at peace because that always waited tremendously on him. So I thought that was very passing that, you know, I got to interview and talk with him at the very end.
0: Well, yeah, that's, that's an incredible opportunity, certainly. And it sounds like he did what he could with his limited capabilities against the, the, the Kennedy administration. But that, that whole cover up and the way that all of that was handled is just such a terrible stain on the American reputation. Just the way that everything went was just, it was just awful all around, honestly. And it really, but it does nothing to negate the courage and the sacrifice of all the people that were involved, the Cubans and the Americans and, and everyone and the uh, families as well.
1: Well, you know, when I was searching for my dad, I married and we ended up living overseas in Germany. And I had gotten a contact because I I wrote for almost 10 years over 200 letters, mailgram, telegrams to the Cuban government. And it happened to be that in 1976, my I met my great grandmother's funeral and she had always promised me when I'm gone, I will send someone to take you home. And my dad was her first grandchild. She had 11 children out of 12 that lived, and my grandmother had been the oldest. And she told me, she says, I don't want you to listen to any of those other people. Don't listen to the CA. You fight for your dad, and you will find him, and you'll bring him home. And I was so alone at her funeral. I thought, here's one person that didn't feel sorry for me, that just said, keep doing what you're doing. And my cousin, Tom Bailey, my dad's. First cousin, he was 13 years old, and my dad was very close to him. In fact, he gave him his first set of wings to Tom. And he walked up to me and he said, I hear you've been looking for your dad. Could I help you and join? And I said, Yes. And unknown to me, he was an editor at the Birmingham News. And he brought in something I lacked. He understood government, he had the power of the written word through the paper. And about not too long after this, I'm in Germany one night. My husband's deployed to Zaragoza, Spain, and F-4s, and someone pounds on my door like two or three in the morning. And where we live, it's very remote, Han Air Force Air Base, and I... See a note taped to the door. I run outside. I'm in my pajamas or gown. I'm wandering around, and you could have heard a pen drop. I knew whoever it was was still there, and I said, "Where are you? Who are you and There was one street light that I made it up to, and it said, "You are to fly home to washington d c You are to call the Czechoslovakian embassy. Ask for this man. They will be very rude to you." And they will call you back. And that's all I needed. I ran home. I grabbed a backpack. I called a girlfriend and said, you got to get me up to the air base up at Rhine, Maine. I've got to catch a hop back to the States. There was a C-141 that was about ready to take off. And they called them up. They told the pilot, hey, this is what we've got here. And the co-pilot said, there were Americans who died in Bay of Pigs. Get her out here. So they took me out there, follow me truck, and I came back. And so after we took off, they called me up and they said, what's going on? And I'm telling them. And they said, do you even have any money? I did not even have a cent to my name. (laughs) So and I got my first credit card. So the crew takes me up money. And so I went to Washington and I went to meet with Senator John Sparkman. He was head of the Foreign Relations Committee from and he was from Alabama and Sparkman and his aide, Steve Miller, they were saying, Well, you can't go. This you cannot go to Cuban intersection. You can't call, you know, the Czechoslovakian embassy. And then his uh secretary, Octa Watson, she interrupted and she said, John, I suggest you support her because she's going no matter what you say. And I'm about 20, 21, and he goes, are you going to go to the embassy, uh, call the Cubans? And I said, oh, yes, I am. And he said, well, then I guess I've got to put my support behind you. And I told him also I had heard rumors of CIA medals. And he said, get get the director of the CIA on the phone now. And he says, he's talking to the director, and he said, my office will be available at 4 o'clock. And I expect if there are any medals or award, they are awarded. And get your agents here. Get someone here now. Well, they called and then we met at six o'clock at the hotel bar at the hotel I was staying at. But I went and met with the Cubans at the Cuban intersection. Clemente Soriano Perez was who I met with. I was very, you know, this is what I want to know. And at one point, the Cubans sent me back saying, well, we can't find a body. And uh, the State Department said, well, they can't find a body. And I I sent a mailgram back saying, I don't care if you can't find a body. If I have to come to Cuba and dig up every single grave there is, I'm going to find my father. Now find where is he? And and at one point they they kept Castro had said he would release the body. He told a uh, writer, Peter Wyden, that he had the body of an American pilot and he gives them photos, but the photos are mixed up. My dad is lay as Baker and vice versa. And they're actually wrong in Peter Wyden's book, if you look at them. And hmm. I asked Wyden, I said, I want to see these photos. He says, well, you can't see them. They're already at the publisher. And I, I, I was so infuriated, called the CIA. I said, Peter Wyden's got photos and they're already at the publisher and they're going to come out in a book. And I asked Peter Wyden, I said, before you release this book, my mom is want, is going to want to see these photos, and you need to let me know so I can come home from Germany and be with my mom and my grandmother, Ray, because this is going to be very traumatic with them. Needless to say, Wyden sent me the photos in advance, so I had them, but my mom or my grandmother had not seen them. And I, he, unknown to us, he has a, ex, the book expressed to to my mother. She's living in Selma at the time. She becomes so upset they rush her to the hospital. And that night she has a massive heart attack and thank God my stepfather who was a doctor was in the room or she probably would not have made it. And I remember coming home on another 141 or from Germany and I said, oh my God, I'm in that steel gray coffin that Eddie Ferrer wrote about in his book, Operation Puma, after the Bay of Pigs. It's how the Cubans felt being transported back to Miami after the after everything had gone bad. Mm-hmm. But it was it it just kept if they would have just been honest all along, showed us the facts and By the way, they were awarded Stars on the Wall and the Intelligence Cross in 1973, but we are not giving them until March of 1978. And we're told, don't talk about and tell anybody about these. And I don't think they actually, at, at the CIA headquarters, there's the Stars and there's Book of Honor. I don't think they actually, I think it was 1998 before they entered the four Alabama pilots into the Book of Honor. The fifth American, Nels L. Benson, had been entered in there many years before. And that, you know, that helped me to track down his family and, and let them know they didn't, Nels L. Benson's family knew nothing about any medals or anything. <laughs>
0: Oh, well, so N- Neville Vincent, you said?
1: Nails L. Benson.
0: Ah, ah. Can you t- tell me about him a little bit? I don't know much about him. Okay,
1: Nails L. Benson. I always knew as a child I would hear rumors of a fifth American, but that never could put it together. And it was in a – I looked for – I tried to find out who, what family, but when I went to the CIA, I think it was in 1996, I saw the name Nails L. Benson, and I said, that's the fifth American. Well, I still could not find his family because he had a name. Laverne was for the L, and they called him Uncle Laverne. And one night playing on After Looking, I find this is in the mid-2006 like 2006 or seven. I found a nephew, I think, and I write to him. I said, Did you have a relative who died in May of 61 from burns? And I explained who I was, and he we wrote back through ancestry, and I we started talking, and he Nelson Benson never had any children. He had been OSS parachuted behind. German lines in Yugoslavia. And by the way, in Ancestry, he was listed as working for the Postal Service. That is <laughs> not who he worked for. But I explained to him, I said, do you know, he has a star on the wall and everything like that. And so his, Nels' sister was still alive and nieces and nephews, and they went to the CIA. And for the first time, and learned about his history. And, and that made me feel really good that we were able to help someone else find a little bit of their history, because I wish someone would have been there to do this for me.
0: Oh, I can imagine. It sounds like you had to put so much work into just getting the the facts of something that happened years and then later decades ago. And it's just, I, I mean, I understand the, the need for operational security, but at, at some point, Especially after a, a number of years have passed and the story is widely known, you should really be clear with the family, if only to spare them a lot of heartache and and kind of honor the service of their their family member. But I, it's it's clear that that's not always what happens.
1: No, it's not. And I tell you, my cousin Tom Bailey was instrumental after Sparkman leaves office. Hal Hefflin comes in, Senator Hal Hefflin, and. I flew back, met with him. He goes, oh, yes, yes. Well, first of all, he wouldn't see me. And I said, well, that's okay. I'm going to sit on this couch all day long, every day until he sees me. So finally, at the end of the first day, I think he finally committed to see me. Well, it just happens to be things are slowing down. I'm in Germany. So it is my cousin, Tom Bailey, that's calling Washington all the time. And Tom calls up there and gets a staffer or either goes to visit. And the staffer just kind of says to Tom, well, the senator's not doing anything. He said he thinks that girl is crazy if she thinks she's going to find a body from a war 18 years ago. And my cousin, who works for the largest paper in Alabama, just politely says, yep, that's my cousin Janet for you. <laughs> and the guy <laughs> froze. So then Tommy is so disgusted that he walks into a a congressman's office and basically I got the name just slips me right now and says, OK, this is what is going on. And the guy said, OK, I'm going to call Janine Mann, who's working for the House Foreign Relations Committee, and she's going to come over here. And when Gene Mann got a hold of that, oh, it was Senator Buchanan, I mean, Congressman Buchanan, I'm sorry, And Janine Mann just took the bull by the horns and boy, she just got in there and started fighting with him. But we were, when Castro had told Wyden that he would release the body, he kept coming up with these demands, and we were having, okay, we were trying to get the body d- identified. Well, we couldn't find good fingerprints. The CIA didn't have good fingerprints. So finally, the air guard steps in and they said, Oh, we've got good fingerprints. Don't worry. And also, I had some dental impressions from when my dad was in uh, high school. He had knocked, he had knocked a tooth out due to during a football game. But the truth was his brother got in a fight with the opposing team and He went in to join to help his brother. But his dentist still had all the dental records. So Tommy goes down and gets the dental records. I've got the other dental records. I do not trust the U.S. government. So I am sending these dental records and by all different means to Cuba. So this, the identification happens in September of 69. And the minute he's identified, We had a lot of people who just, and even my own family, just thought I was out there. I wasn't, you know, I I got to where I didn't even tell them anything because they would, you know, it would cause trouble. And then the media grabs a hold of it. Tom and I and my grandmother are invited to go to Good Morning America. Tom is the voice of reason. And my grandmother and I, my grandmother, Ray, my father's mother, We're on the television there. And it was very funny. I fly back from Germany and I walk into my hotel, the St. Moritz. I put my stuff down and immediately the phone is ringing and it's the CIA on the phone. And they're like, well, we had a contact person. And he says, well, we hear you're the director and I hear you're going on Good Morning America tomorrow. And basically, they just wanted to let me know that they would be watching and that this gentleman goes out of a country under assumed names and aliases and that he was canceled from going. And they'll be watching me on Television, but by that point, I didn't care. And they said, and I said, You are not my enemy. You just need to tell me the truth. And that was, they would always, you know, they were always very nice. You shouldn't do this. This is upsetting people. Why do you bring this up? And I remember asking the person, I said, Do you have a father? And he goes, Yes. And I go, Well, go back and tell the director and everybody, do I tell you what you can and what you can't do? with your own father. And I said, just because you've forgotten your code of loyalty does not give me the right to do the same. And I'm going to find him and I'm going to bring him home with honor. But when the notoriety came, all of a sudden we had other family members who had been ridiculing me and, you know, wanting this to go away because it did upset people. You know, they were always for it. Just the thought of him being kept in a moor for almost 19 years was too much for them to bear. But I had been telling them, they've got a body, they have a body. But then it became, I felt like like there was always a war between Fidel Castro and I, and he, he was trying to draw me into his web. And once he said, I'll release the body. And he had told Peter Wyden, go and find the daughter of the American pilot and tell her I have the body and I will release him. Well, Castro kept coming up with demands. The United States government had to request him back. The U.S. government said, well, we don't know if we can. And I said, well, yes, you can. Or I'll start naming some names of some very high level people that were there. And I'm sure they will help you request them back. It it wasn't that I was threatening the agency. It was that I had just reached the point of you've known the truth the whole time and you Mm. didn't have to destroy his reputation. You could have brought him home. And at one point, the Cuban government said, We want uh, $36,000 storage charges. It was passed to Jadine Mann, and the U.S the State Department, the CIA called me. And they said, well, we'll explain that you don't have that type of money. And I said, that's not the point. I'm going to answer. And they said, oh, no, we'll answer. them." I said, no, I will answer. So I went up to the base. We had a Bundespost there, the German post office. And I sent a mailgram to Fidel Castro. And I said, I refuse to dishonor my father. By paying a ransom, if you continue with this demand, I will take it to the world press and let them sit in judgment to you. Because no matter how much I wanted him home, I was not going to betray what he stood for. And they did drop that demand. There was a little bit of money paid just for the coffin and the preparation to send back to Alabama. He came home in December of seventy-nine. But there was, how to, I don't know how to say this in a polite way is the men with the calluses are on hand, the people that do the covert operations, the men that put their lives on the hand, they are a hundred percent American. But it's when you get those people at the top that are playing politics and CYAing for a president who I think actually. Betrayed the invasion. He used it. Kennedy used this to get elected by saying Nixon and Eisenhower were soft on um, Cuba when he knew there was an invasion being planned and he couldn't do anything. Even Bissell told me there was a buildup between the election in November and Kennedy coming into power, the the whole mission plan because he had even led Bissell to believe we were going to do more. And once Kennedy gets in, he actually tries to call it off. And they go to Frank Egan, and they go to the American pilots. Okay, you've got relationship with the air and the ground force of the brigade. Can you persuade them? And Egan said, nobody's going to persuade him. And they'll come back and talk. I'll even come back and talk. And they went to the air division and the Connie Sigris was telling me this. And he said, well, we're going to have to follow Garth route, who was the commander at the time, orders. But there was a point to where they did try to call it off. But it, it was at a point to where everyone would have came back and spoken. So instead of calling it off, they at the last minute keep downsizing it. And people talk about how the ships were loaded. It wasn't done right. No, the key to the whole invasion was to controlling the airspace. Those ships were never even supposed to get near Cuba until every single aircraft was taken out. And we could have if they would allow the original 16 bombers to go on the 15th and wave after wave. So when these men landed in the morning of the 17th, there would have been no aircraft to take them out.
0: Yeah. I've, I've heard something similar to that in the past that it was the, the air power pulled at the last minute was the, the deciding factor in the invasion failing. And is that, As I understand it, that's part of what led your father and the other National Guard pilots to actually go up. Because as I understand it, Janet, they were just going to be advisors and trainers far, far away from the actual side of the invasion. And then they had to go up because the Cuban pilots were flying so many missions and and so tired and stressed out. Is that about accurate?
1: Yes. What was happening was the Cuban pilots is Air crews need their rest, and they never could get these guys the rest because they never knew if they were to take off or not take off. So they've lost a tremendous amount of pilots. On the afternoon of the 18th, there was a sixth flight that went in. The lead one was flew, flown by uh, Sig. The second one was Doug Price. Connie Segrist was the first one. I called him Sig. They went in on the 18th. Then the morning of the 19th is my dad and then went in. But I, I do want to know that they had become brothers. And at one point, Sig and Doug, when they saw what was happening, and Sig even says this about when they were canceling the airstrikes and no one could figure out what was going on, he said, It was like working for a trader, but we did not know who the trader was. Mm. And they could not abandon the brigade. So all of the American pilots said, we'll fly, we'll go. And that's why my dad went out on the first wave. He was a a lone airplane going up flight, going up to the Sugar Mill. He was patrolled that road. And then there were Riley Schamberger and uh, Joe Shannon were out at the uh, Bay of Pigs. And and then there was others that went in, Livingston and Dodo Goodwin went in further to fight. And there was a second wave coming behind them, which Sig and Doug were in and some other Americans. And they were told, if you don't hear from the first wave of pilots at this point, turn around and come back because they didn't make it and they that last six ship coming in turns around and goes back because they cannot make contact with mm-hmm. the first guys now Dodo Goodwin did make it back uh, and Livingston did make it back dodo had a rocket hanging from the bottom of his plane so they had a little emergency that he had to land with this hanging rocket they evacuated everything except a fire crew by Bill Gray who went to school with my dad also but he landed and that rocket did not go off gonzalo herrera had also flown the last day of the mission he made it back and gonzalo was one of the ones that the guy who worked on the sheet metal would say, uh, Charles Yates would say, we didn't have much to do, but whenever Gonzalo Herrera came back, that plane was full of bullet holes. The other ones that flew Cubans courageously was Rene Garcia, Gustavo Panzola, And I became very close to these men and the other people involved in the Bay of Pigs, I interviewed all the people just about in the Air Division, Stanley Beerly, George Gaines. I went to see Jake Esterline. I was always looking for the rest of the story, the Paul Harvey, the story that made it come alive. At and then I would also share this with the other family members that were there at the time. So
0: that's wonderful. That's wonderful. That's a huge amount of work, but it's you've you've shined such a light on on so many of these important details for the people that remain behind. So that's wonderful.
1: Well, you know, these Cubans uh, after the Bay of Pigs, a lot of the Cuban pilots went to the Congo, and they're. They kind of formed a squadron called Makasi. There was an air division, a ground division, and a navy and Gonzalo Ponzoa came to me and he said, "I have the last photo of a gentleman named John Merriman. Can you find his family? He had three boys." Well, it took me a while, and I finally found the family of John Merriman. They were also out at Marana, and John Merriman had been in a flight with Poopy Varilla, and his plane had crashed. He had some kind of oil problem, and it crashed, and then a few days later, the friendly natives brought, you, brought him out. And he ends up dying on the way back to the United States. He has an aneurysm in the Azores. But he said, can you find this family? Well, it, I found the family and the widow, Val, and the son, John, came to Miami to speak for the first time to hear the story of exactly how John Merriman died. And it wasn't too much longer that the CIA awarded them uh, a star on the wall and medals, and they were able to see the truth. So, you know, good can come from tragedy. And I will say this, no one affected from the Bay of Pigs escapes without scars. But it's the difference in what you do with those scars And like I look at the other children, Leo Baker's daughter, Teresa, was just incredible. I think she was, I was six at the time and she was 11. And he told her, the last thing he told her was, you know, brush your teeth and go to mass. And she, it was her tremendous faith that saved her and she has more faith than I will ever imagine and she went on to get a PhD in education and taught math in college area so there you know i think her father would have been extremely proud shamberger had one daughter and she was 14 which i think is was a really hard time to lose it and sadly she's passed but you know, she does have children and grandchildren that we can share the story with. And I do have an older brother. Our dad loved us equally, but there was a special bond between my dad and I. And I was the one that just would not accept he was gone. Mm. I, I was going to do it and bring him home. So,
0: well Well, it sounds like you accomplished what you set out to do, so that's wonderful, Janet. I want to ask the other three pilots that you mentioned, were their remains recovered as well, or are are they still lost?
1: No, Riley Schamberger and Wade Gray went into the ocean, never been recovered. Leo Baker, he would, he tanned easy and had curly hair. He would have looked like a, a Cuban. I understand he was put in the mass grave and there was, the family did try to find out what happened to him, but I've never really been able to nail that one down. There were two Bay of Pigs pilots who bombed Cuba landed at Boca Chica, were sent out very late at night, and they disappeared. They had overshot the runway 25, 26 years old. They're tired, they're exhausted, and they crash up in the northern mountains of Nicaragua near the town of San Jose de Bocay. It ends up that the CIA goes there, and they just decide, we're going to cover it all up because the brigade is still in prison. And that family asked me to help them. And there was a team of us from the uh, brigade that we worked on this. We I, we finally went to Nicaragua. We found part of the airplane parts. We brought it back. And I spoke to the Army recovery team out of Hawaii and said, will you go in and get it? And they go, well, someone's got to fund it. You got to get the CIA on board Well, the CIA would not get on board. So finally, I wrote uh, a letter and I said, when a commander leads his men into harm's way, he has a moral duty and obligation to bring them to their home, to the family for proper burial, be it U.S. citizen or not. And I said, the question is, what code of loyalty does the CIA have to their men? Because... If you don't give loyalty in return, you will never get it. No matter how much you pay, you pay someone. And then I got this call back from the CIA. They go, "Okay, no more mules for you because it wasn't a remote area. We're sending you in in Black Hawk helicopters. We just got we got to send you some stuff for you to review." And I actually went there with the U.S. Army team. It was the first mission that the CIA has ever funded, and they did plan to do more, as long as we could keep the mission humanitarian. Because in these missions, we could—you can't whip the, the opposing government. Like you can't use it as a whipping post against Fidel Castro, and that did cause some problems. And. Mm. I spoke to the families and we agreed, no matter what we found, we were gonna bury them together because if you don't know what part belongs, it can't be buried. And we went there and I lived on this in a tent for a month with the US military. And we had 20 armed guards, cause it was still a area that was off limits to even embassy personnel. And the armed guards were Nicaraguan military. And we actually found the remains to bring home to the family. And the son of one of the pilot, Crispin Garcia, had also gone on a pre-planning mission with us, but we brought him home. And I remember coming out of there, I was on the last helicopter out and the the guy said, let's just do one more pass over it. And I was able to sit where the gunner was. And we did one more pass. And I can tell you how proud of my government I was, that they were bringing these men home. And they did go on to bring Earthquake Magoon that had been killed in So. The, I was very proud of the agency that they would do that. And I met a lot of these people that were involved in a lot of covert ops. And they're just the finest people in the world. That's all I can say.
0: I can imagine. I can imagine that. That is a wonderful tribute, even if it's decades later that they, they do recover the people that are lost. Uh, that is very important to the families and to the future operators as well, I think, to know that they won't be forgotten.
1: Yes, I think it is, too.
0: So, Janet, did you ever or have you ever traveled to Cuba?
1: No. When my cousin Tom Bailey came on in uh, July of 1976 and started helping, we immediately started doing Freedom of Information Act, and we started the uh, process to try to go to Cuba And at one point, the Cubans did say, well, the U.S. government said, well, if you go to Cuba, you'll probably be arrested when you come back in. And Mm -hmm. I said, I don't think you'll do that. But then there was one point where the Cubans wanted us to come to Cuba. They wanted my cousin, Tom Bailey, myself, and we were going to take my father's brother, Joe Ray, with us to go there. But The U.S. government was very against it. They were very worried about my safety and that the propaganda use. And at the time I was coming to Miami on my college years and walking up and down the streets of Little Havana and that area all hours of day and night, that was at a time when... There was a little war between the exile community of those people who wanted dialogue or were pro-Castro against the ones Mm -hmm. that weren't. So there were a lot of bombs going off, including car bombs. But I was – I could not allow fear to control me. And there was a song, I think it – Simon Garfunkel, and it said, I am a rock and I am an island and then Isla Never Cries, I had to make myself be that way. It And one of the hardest things I did was when my dad came home, was to look at him in that coffin. And I owed it to him. It was my duty, but I also would have never believed it was him until I saw for myself. And the sad part is I had to give up my last memories of him. And what I saw in that coffin will haunt me to the day I died. But I am my father's daughter, and he would not have done anything less for me.
0: I bet. That's that's hard to imagine. I it's, can't imagine myself in that same situation. But that's wonderful that you were able to bring him home in the end. Was he buried there in Alabama afterwards?
1: Yeah, he's buried at Forestdale cemetery, right there near the airport. You can stand at his grave. You can look across the airport and see the Alabama air guard and the little road that went up to his house on Green Street. And I was told, you can take him to Arlington. I said, no, he's an Alabama boy. He's going home to Alabama. Mm -hmm. And I remember George Wallace came to his funeral And I didn't know Wallace had come in because he was behind me in the seating. And after it was over, I was just emotionally split. I was in really bad shape. And I remember he just took my hand and he said, thank you for bringing home an Alabama boy. Thank you. And there was about 17 Cubans that came there. In fact, One of the people that identified him's brother was in the brigade pilot, and this gentleman, Mario Martinez, was at UAB Dental School, and he came and helped did the dental identification for him. And Jay Glass, who was a coroner in Alabama, said, this man did not die from the shooting. The last shot was point blank to the right temple. He was basically executed. And you can see the star pattern in the gun, the burns that were on the body. And so there was a lot of tremendous help from behind the scenes. In fact, when Mario Martinez died, he in his obituary that that was one of the greatest things that he ever did in his life was to identify an American who had given his life for Cuba's freedom.
0: Hmm. hmm. That's poignant. I can imagine. So, is there a does the Alabama National Guard memorialize him in any way? Is do they have a a building named after him or any of the other pilots? Anything well, like that?
1: He, every year on the anniversary of his death, of April the nineteenth, they hold a a service for him at the at his grave. And this year, I've been in at. Asked to come back by the 117th Wing of the Alabama Air Guard and the Southern Museum of Flight. And I'm actually going home to Birmingham to talk to a group about the effects on the family and the mission to bring him home. Family members of all four men are coming back. Some of the family members of other men are going to also be there as. Along with the coroner, Jay Glass and Mario Martinez's daughter is coming back. And we have nieces and nephews. So it's going to be quite an emotional time. And I've always regretted we could not bring them all back. But, you know, you just have to do the best you can to do that.
0: Well, you've certainly done the best you could. and You had some amazing results there, Janet. So... That's that's really something to be proud of. I attended last year. I attended the 60th anniversary ceremony at Tamiami, so I've I've seen your your father's photo and I've seen that B26 that is on display there. Um I don't know if you were there as well. I don't think I I, I
1: was listened. there. I was okay. uh standing up with uh a group of about five or six other pilots children. <laughs> we've all become extremely close some of these some of the guys lost their fathers in the congo but they also flew in the uh, bay of pigs so i was with them but it for me it, i like to hear the individual stories i like to sit in a small room with three or four guys and then their memory starts pinging recently i've gotten in touch with dalton livingston's widow and sadly he dies in 1975 while flying a CIA plane. And Dalton Livingston's wife had actually been at my mother's house the day she found out. She said, But then your uncle appeared, and I knew there was some kind of family situation going on. But like, down here, like the brigade, there will be this Saturday. There will be an event at Tamiami. Then later on Sunday, they will the seventeenth. They will read the names. I'm going to be reading the names of the four American, and adding the fifth one, Nels L. Benson, because I would like to see him added to the monument because he was there involved in that. But we're losing a lot of people. I think in the last 14 months or 15, I think I've gone to over 30-something funerals. Brigade members are either covert ops in the uh, Congo. but And we actually won that one. <laughs> so, right, right. But it, it, it's very meaningful to be with them. But also, they became my lifelong friends. And it's like so painful because I'm losing them now. And every once in a while, I'll hear one of their children speaking, and I go, oh, my God, that is their dad. That is their Mm -hmm. dad's voice. Renee Garcia is one of those. It's just incredible to hear these guys, to see what came from their fathers down through them and their beliefs. And all of them are very, very patriotic.
0: Oh, yeah, I got that feeling. I haven't ever seen a group of more patriotic people in my life. I don't think there were, you know, 500 or more people probably at that memorial last year and just a a tremendous... Amount of nostalgia and I could see a lot of, you know, a lot of emotion. People seeing other people they hadn't seen in years. At that time, I didn't know anybody, but I've gotten to know a few of the people that were there, including yourself.
1: If uh, I wish I would have known you were there, I could have introduced you to some people and you could have even just stayed at my house. Usually those events, (laughs) I, I just open up and say, okay, the only thing is you must like dogs, but it was tremendous. I was looking back going to Alabama. I have like. I'd say 15 bins, big plastic bins that have research that I've done over the years because oh, wow. I even got research from the CIA through Jack Pfeiffer. And it he goes, you know, this is still classified, so you can't give it out. So I'd say, okay. So one time I was in Birmingham, Alabama, and there was a CIA guy there. And he said, you know, that information you have is still classified. And I go, well, don't worry, I bought a stamp and declassified it. Yeah. <laughs> and he just looked at me and I said, Don't worry, I've never given it out, but I did use it for research to ask people about it. I'll give you an example. The Taylor Commission, they talk about a pilot Hayden. Pilot Hayden was not a pilot, he was my mother's brother. He was there during the invasion. But he was never a pilot. Uh, and In fact, he never even made it. I think he was in one of the planes coming that turned back on the last day. So I kind of know the behind the scenes of what was going on and when they get things wrong or right. And it's very hard for me, like... I will tell people there were two aircraft carriers and they'll go, no, there wasn't. I go, yeah. And there was a submarine and mm. there were, and I interviewed even the Navy pilots that were on the aircraft Essex are flying. One of them writes and talks about after the invasion is over with and they're finally allowed to fly down on the deck where they can see what's going on. And the a Force could see a concentration of the brigade But over here they could see a concentration of Castro's troops at a Russian helicopter. And what was happening is the brigade were seeing the a force, and they were coming out of hiding. And basically the, they were being led into an ambush by Fidel Castro's troops. Oh, wow. And the, the, Pilots radio back to the Essex, give us permission to at least fire around Castro's troops to alert the brigade they're there. And they were radio back and said, no, Black Walnut said no. And then the pilot said, we became the Judases leading the brigade to captivity. Black Walnut was codenamed for the White House.
0: Oh, wow. Wow. What a debacle that was. Sadly, <laughs> a
1: lot of these guys went on to die in Vietnam. But I did interview a lot of those who were still alive. And the anguish that the Navy pilots felt on those ships, not being able to help the brigade at any any way, it, it, it's just painful. And you got to realize this was pre-Vietnam. No one mm-hmm. thought your government would betray you like this.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a, a brand new era, unfortunately. And yeah, it's it's you gotta feel terribly helpless, all this training, all this technology, weaponry, all this, you know, military might, and you're just gonna sit off the coast and not use it, you know, while other people are in the fight of their lives. It's it's gotta be unbelievably frustrating and it and it doesn't really make any sense either.
1: Well, you know, there's always been a time that oh my dad was supposed to have Navy air coverage, but there was a mix up on time zone. No, wars don't act they They operate according to Zulu time. But what the Navy pilots told me and everybody is our radar knew 25 to 45 minutes before those planes ever hit the beach that they were coming. Because there was a second carrier that was between Nicaragua and Cuba, and it would pick those planes Hmm. up also. So uh, there's always been the the, the lie. And there's always a lot of CYA. I mean, even Gar Thorsrud said when they canceled that first airstrike, he knew it was over. We were just sending those poor boys as cannon fodder. Uh, so it was. And one thing that Gar, I did meet Gar and I did speak to Gar, but one of everybody was very surprised because Gar Thor's rude. That was one thing you never brought up to him. Everybody knew anybody that ever ran into Gar said, "Up, oh, you never brought that bay of pigs. You could bring up anything else, but not bay of pigs to him." Mm. I I got to where when I would call people, I would say like, "Before you answer me." will you listen to me first and then you can answer me? And I was talking to Sig, Connie Sigris, and then he said, you have to be who you say you are or you would not know what you know. So I got into that. There were a lot of smoke jumpers there that have been out of Montana and Idaho. I got to be very good friends with them. In fact, there were two or three, I think three of the guys that were involved in the Bay of Pigs that were young smoke jumpers, that one of the mothers, John Lewis's mother said, I've never seen her son so upset in her life and so angry at the US government. And they go on to Laos and they're killed in the first aircraft accident in 1961 of August. And about five or six years ago, they finally added their stars to the wall. So you might even say that, you know, there's three more associated with the Cubans that were there. It's amazing that John Lewis's mother had kept every news article she could on on the Bay of Pigs, even articles on myself that the sister gave to me many years later. And I found that that was true. A lot of these guys that were in Marana that I didn't even know had saved articles and all of a sudden they're giving it to me and they go, we all knew what you were doing and we, we were all worried about you, but you know, w- we were sworn to secrecy. So.
0: Well, well, you, you certainly persevered through all that adversary. That's incredible, Janet. So you you've clearly, done a ton of research, Janet. Is there a good place for people who are listening to this? Is there a good resource for them to go to, to, to read more? Have you written a book or do you have a website or anything like that? I
1: am not a writer. I just do not have that that grace. It's kind of with me. You can pick it out here and there, but really it's all sitting stored in my home. I have thought about writing a book, but it's very hard for someone to capture I would say my voice as far as I can tell it. I can tell it and give you all the everything down. It's just putting it together. And I think a lot of it is because after my dad was killed, I was in first grade and I went back to school and I sat down at my desk and the teacher said, write your name and I didn't know how to spell or write anymore and I got so sick, I threw up on my desk. And I oh I think that's kind of a, a, a blockage of, you know, how it affects little kids, little children. Mm-hmm. I really think that goes back because I've looked at my handwriting before that date and after that date, and there's no comparison. It's it's something there. Yes, I can tell it. Yes, I can give the dates, and you know sometimes I might have to look them up, but it's all here. And I've always believed that when you walk through the fires of hell, a tragedy and you survive, you should share it with other people, because what I did with my tragedy, whenever I was feeling down, I would look to someone. Who suffered far more than I did, and that was what helped with the Cubans. And I said, if they can do it, I can do it too. Mm -hmm. And you know, I I kind of lost my faith in God because he he just wasn't answering, and I got to where I would watch. Westerns like John Wayne. And these were my heroes. Kurt Douglas, the, these were the people that I looked up to. And like, I got the movie, The Searchers. I understood that that drive that you go through in times because I was very good at, you know, keeping my grades up at school, living a normal life, you know i had to stay focused i never did drugs or anything like that i did party a little bit with a, in college and stuff but i always said nothing can ever distract from this mission and i think it really kept me very centered i noticed in when i was in junior high they there was a quote that i would be the first person getting on a plane and never coming back when i was a senior the the quote written about me was I marched to a different drummer. The problem is no one ever knew what, what tune I was marching to. There because there must have been something there where I was a little different. I got to where I wouldn't tell my mom anything, hardly, or family, because my mom would go and tell the CA, even though she was afraid of them. She got along very well with them, and I do respect them, but because they would get to someone and they wouldn't talk to me, they'd leave me standing outside in the pouring rain years later, a lot of these same people did ask for forgiveness, and I said no i I just I knew you couldn't talk about it, but any little sentence I could pick up I learned to I would talk with a lot of people who would just feed you a line or try to make you feel good. But I learned in speaking with the men involved, I would say, "Well, what did you drink down there?" And then I would get in the conversation, "Well, did you drink American, Did you drink any American beer?" If they didn't say Bush Bavarian beer, I knew they were not in the air camps because oh. that's what was flown into the to the base. Mm. So I, I just learned these little things to tell different people apart. Mm -hmm. It's just a way. And, you know, this was way before computers. I was going to libraries and going to crisscross indexes and phone books. And it was very difficult to learn the facts of everything that that took place. And I even afterwards, I even tracked down the man who had actually seen my dad's body, several of them. One guy, he worked for another morgue, but he would go to the Vanna morgue and he would see the body. And the Cubans were like, why are we keeping this American body along? You know, it takes money because, you know, when you lose power, but not always did they keep it refrigerated. They had some problems. But I even tracked down the men who were there when the day my dad was executed. They worked for the kind of the Red Cross there. I learned so much more afterwards. You think you think when you bury him that's the end of the story and I remember after we buried him this wave went on me and I said, "Oh my gosh, this was just a learning experience. There's something more out there for you to do. Your journey has only just begun." I realized that God had never deserted me, but I guess I'm from the South and we're slow learners sometimes. So I thought, well, you had to walk through, you know, almost 19 years of hell to get where you are now. And that was very meaningful for me. And I played the song that I had was You'll Never Walk Alone, because it's a sadness for me that I think the fear that that he must have felt in those final moments of his life. I'm sure he was praying that someone would be there for his family. It's just a shame that his government chose not to do. And they basically victimize these women. I know people watching my house. I could see them on the hill behind my house smoking cigarettes at night. And I would go up in the woods the next day and find, you know, Cigarette butts and gum wrappers. Uh, and uh, Violet Gray was so afraid she put bars on her window and threw the key away. All these women added floodlights to their home. <clears throat> it it was a a very big fear cycle. We appeared in Life Magazine. And someone started calling my mom saying he was going to come down and marry her and brush my (laughs) hair. And I remember the men coming in suits and then they're talking to my mom because I learned to listen under doors and through heating vents that, well, should they cut my hair off? And then they finally decided no, let her walk to school. And it just ended up that someone who had had mental problems, in New York had read about it and I don't think it was a direct threat, but I always hated it when the men came in suits with the soft hands.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, wow, my goodness. Well, Janet, thank you so much for sharing this story with us. I'm, I'm sad to hear that you haven't written a book or anything because I'd love to read it, but at least we had the opportunity to talk about this and and get it out there in front of everybody who's listening now and who might listen in the future as well, because it's an incredible story.
1: Okay. Well, thank you.
0: (laughs) So I'll, I'll definitely stay in touch after this. I probably going to come back to you for some research help in the future, if you don't mind, by the way.
1: Oh yeah. Devin, I'll, I'll look it up and find it for you. (laughs) A lot of photos too.
0: Good, good, good. Yeah. I love photos. Certainly. All right. well, Well, thank you so much, Janet. You take care and I'll be in touch.
1: Okay. Thank you.
0: If you're interested in more of SpyCraft 101, look for my page on Instagram, at SpyCraft101, or connect with me on Patreon. My patrons get exclusive access to long-form blog posts that dive deep into some of the most amazing stories in the history of espionage, and receive free or discounted books and products from the SpyCraft 101 store. This includes a free PDF copy of my own book, Spy Shots Volume 1, 101 True Tales from the World of Espionage. I want to say a big thank you to all of my patrons, including Lauren M. and James J., With your support, I've been able to continue funding my research and publication across multiple platforms to date. Thank you all for listening and I hope you'll stick around because there's lots more to come. Thanks for listening to this program brought to you by Daydreamer Network. If you enjoyed the episode, please don't forget to rate and review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred platform. Your feedback allows us to rank on the best new shows list and continue to grow our podcasts in order to bring more unique and talented storytellers to the network. To check out our shows, including programs about relationships, sports, business, nutrition, leisure, and more, head to www.daydreamernetwork.com. We look forward to seeing you back next week for another great episode. Have a wonderful day.